All right, I think we're going to get things started here, if you'll oblige. Welcome to the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank founded in 1977 to promote the ideas of limited government, individual liberty, free markets, and peace. And of course, today we are having a conference uh, marking, I think celebrating would not be the correct word, the uh, anniversary of the enactment of the Affordable Care Act, sometimes described as Obamacare. Um, if I could please ask you to silence your cell phones um, during this uh, uh, conference, that would be greatly appreciated. I have been told to threaten violators of this rule with a death panel, uh, but uh, we, I don't believe in such things, uh, but just consider yourself warned. We are, uh, well, I first tell you um, my, who I am. I'm Ramesh Panuru, a senior editor of National Review, and I am uh, pleased to introduce you to someone who is, among many other things, a valued colleague of mine at National Review, where he's a contributing editor, David Rivkin. Uh, David is a partner at uh, Baker and Hostetler. Uh, he is uh, someone who has had a lengthy career in government. Uh, he has uh, served in the White House during two presidents' terms, served in the U.S. Department of Justice and the Department of Energy. So for people keeping score, most of his time in government has been uh, in agencies whose existence this institution approves of. Uh, he is a visiting fellow at the Nixon Center, a member of the Advisory Council at National Interest Magazine, co-chairman of the Center for Law and Counterterrorism at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He has served on the United Nations Commission on Human Rights. And he has frequently testified before Congress, for example, during the confirmation hearings for now Justice Sonia Sotomayor. Uh, the... Uh, Anybody who watches TV or reads uh, opinion magazines uh, or newspapers, for that matter, has probably seen him or read his byline. Uh, but most relevant to today's event, uh, David is the lead outside counsel for the Florida lawsuit against Obamacare, the one that has led to a district judge declaring the entirety of the law unconstitutional. And it is that effort and that topic that he is going to be talking about today, uh, followed by some questions. So let's all give a round of applause to David Rivkin. Thank you. Should have omitted the reference to the Human Rights Commission, but I did not enjoy Geneva very much either. Anyway, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I wanted to thank uh, the Cato Institute for inviting me to speak. and. Ramesh for his uh, gracious introduction. My brief remarks today will cover both the substantive aspects of our challenge to Obamacare, the merits of our case, if you will, and some background on where um, our case and other cases stand procedurally as this litigation unfolds. And of course, we all know it's going to end up in the Supreme Court eventually. Now, tackling the substance first, the individual mandate, which is situated at the very heart of Obamacare, uh, violates in my view, and uh, fortunately and more importantly, in the view of our uh, district court, the most fundamental constitutional principles. It violates centuries of settled case law. It is fundamentally different from every law regulating commerce that Congress has ever enacted from the first day of our republic up to now. 
Indeed, on the flip side of it, ladies and gentlemen, if a mandate were to be constitutional, much of the framers' drafting of the original Constitution and of a Bill of Rights and all of a Congress's, subsequent Congress's legislative work in the centuries hence, at best, is largely incoherent and at worst superfluous. Whilst I was not engaging hyperbole when I stated uh, during the December 16 oral argument before Judge Roger Minson and our cross motions for summary judgment, but the individual mandate in the act, charmingly referred to as PPACA, for those of you who are like acronyms, which it is the key part, um, the single most unconstitutional piece of statutory language in our history. I also said at the time that it's one of the most badly drafted statutes I've ever seen, but that's a, a different story, but I'll be happy to elaborate on that during Q's and A's. Now, of course, that's not how the administration feels. The Obama administration's bottom line is that Congress can indeed regulate com commerce by first forcing people to engage in it and then regulating their engagement. Under their thinking, doing nothing is an economic activity that Congress can reach through the Commerce Clause proper and then packaged into a more comprehensive statute like Obamacare, also under the Nesserian proper clause. This argument and uh, some related points that are made in the process has at least five major constitutional consequences, all of which violate both the fundamental constitutional principles and centuries of settled case law. To begin with, this argument eviscerates the very core architectural principle of dual sovereignty, that is, the heart of our constitutional architecture, which is, requires necessarily, if it's to have any meaning, that the federal government exercises only limited and enumerated powers while the states, in James Madison's famous words, possess, quote, residual sovereignty, unquote, often referred to as police power, of course, regulating an activity, regulating people because they exist, not because of activities they engage to, but compelling them to act is the very essence of general police power. Another attribute of general police power is that unlike a regulation of individuals based upon their activities, their actions cannot be avoided. Nothing captures this distinction, this, this point, better than the fact that all one has to do, put yourself in a position of a person who is trying to decide whether to comply, given federal statute regulating a particular activity, let's say commodity, be it wheat or cannabis. Um, could have said weed, but cannabis sounds a little more scholarly. Is not to engage in that activity or do nothing with regard to the commodity and issue, and presto pronto, you just opted out of a federal regulatory vortex. The statute has nothing to do with you. You can go on with your life. By contrast, in the state of Massachusetts, requires old adults to be inoculated for smallpox. There's no opting out of that particular regulatory regime. If you're an adult, if you happen to be found within the borders of Massachusetts, you are stuck. It applies to you. Same, of course, is true with regard to such things as um, obligation to purchase hurricane insurance and various other things that states exercising general police power can do to you, whatever the policy merits of those schemes. Now, to justify claiming for itself this police power, federal government, in effect, argues that inactivity, specifically in our case, a failure by an individual to acquire a particular good or service, again, in our case, um, qualified particular type of, of medical insurance, is within the scope of a Commerce Clause because this inactivity can be linked, can be tightly linked to a discernible economic effect. Indeed, the most articulate version of this argument uh, was made in Judge Judith Kessler's 
uh, from District Court bench in the District of Columbia, recent decision, which upheld the individual mandate, which essentially proceeded as follows. A failure to purchase insurance is a decision, which is no different than the decision to purchase insurance. And since both the purchasing and non-purchasing decisions, ladies and gentlemen, in the aggregate have a substantial economic footprint, they can be reached under the Commerce Clause, full stop. Now, it's an elegantly worded decision, quite frankly better than some other decisions that make the same point, but the argument is still fundamentally flawed. Now, leaving aside the fact that Judge Kessler and the administration are making some rather remarkable assumptions about human nature, I don't know about you, but uh, it's a bit of a surprise to me since not every aspect of our existence is driven by well-structured decisions. But leaving that little point aside, um, uh, there's a fundamental problem here because in a modern economy, every inactivity, every failure to purchase a good or service, or every failure to engage in a particular activity, let's say sleeping to the exclusion of working, has in the aggregate some, let's stipulate, pretty formidable economic consequences. Hence, there cannot be any judicially enforceable limiting principle found here, and all activities can be swept in under the Commerce Clause. Now, under this logic, the federal government is capable of exercising general police power, and the dual sovereignty system is pretty much dead, which may not trouble some folks, but at least when you try to sell it to the courts. Um, the government is understandably nervous about the uh, implications of this argument, that Congress can essentially regulate anything, so it's come up pretty early in litigation with a follow-up argument that it claims has a built-in limiting principle. What government is really making is a kind of plea to the court. Please, please uphold the statute. You have no consequences for the future. Nothing like this would ever happen again. Now, why is that? Well, and I quote the argument the government has made innumerable times in their pleadings, in our case, in other cases, an oral argument, and the, argument, and the claim is, quote, the health care market is unique, close quote. But it ain't unique, not by a long short, at least as I hope to convince you. Now, the government has essentially adduced three claims relating to uniqueness, all of them false. First, it says that healthcare market is unique because everybody participates in it sooner or later. We even call it inevitability of consumption argument, but this is nonsense. Every existing market, including the market for luxury goods and certainly markets for necessities of life, features participation by sufficiently large number of folks over a sufficiently long period of time, otherwise those markets would be no more. Second, the government says, well, the healthcare market is unique because there is cost shifting. Well, what the hell is that? Well, that's the old thing about people visiting the emergency rooms and have no coverage and they don't pay for the services rendered and then taxpayers and other patients wind up paying for it. Now, there are some economists who disagree with that. I'll actually direct your attention to an excellent piece in the Wall Street Journal the other day where several good economists argued that actually there's not that much cost shifting from the uninsured to the insured. But even if it were true, the cost shifting is ubiquitous, which is a fancy word saying prevalent in all of the other markets. Think about a fellow who defaults on his, on his credit card or his mortgage. Wow, a systemic risk there. Or writes a bad check or declares a bankruptcy. What do you think happens? You'll pay. Um, indeed, the cost shifting is an inherent feature of all markets in a modern economy, and probably not even in a very modern economy, certainly in the 20th and 19th century economy, where credit, ladies and gentlemen, is extended at the front end to market participants where you don't pay cash in the barrel. So there's nothing unique about that. The third claim is that 
This market is unique because consumers, unless they're protected by this very wise government that has come up with a insurance purchase mandate, can be completely wiped out because the medical care is so darn expensive. Perhaps true, but there's also nothing unique about this prospect. Sadly, but inevitably, there are numerous conceivable contingencies, which have unfortunately come about can pretty much wipe you out just as well. Losing a job often does. So does a catastrophic business failure that settles its owners with ruinous financial liability. So does addictive gambling, or maybe not addictive, just gambling. So does the use of addictive substances, or crippling depression, or debilitating disease that leaves us unable to work. Now, under the government's logic, the existence of those potential calamities would seem to justify having Congress enact an all-purpose catastrophic insurance coverage purchase requirement. It's my favorite commercial, the AFLAC, kind of a comprehensive AFLAC member goes, if you lose your job, you're sick, they're going to pay for food and rent and all the necessities of life. So we can all have a comprehensive AFLAC to cover us and make sure there's no cost shifting. But you know what? You want to need to go into those other markets to demonstrate the silliness, uh, absurdity of a government's uh, uniqueness arguments. I'll just stick with the healthcare market for a second. The government's definition of this market is so broad, so capacious, encompassing as it does the consumption of all the medical goods and services, products, and all the arrangements can be used to pay, pay for them. That market alone can sustain an infinite variety of mandates under government logic. Now, why is that? Well, the proponents of Obamacare and its predecessors have often justified this exercise the way of bending the cost curve. How do you bend the cost curve? You require folks to purchase healthy foods, buy gym classes, why not mental wellness lessons, regular checkups? It would be very logical. So even if we're dealing with health care alone, this is not a unique mandate. There can be plenty of others that Congress would be able to enact in the future. So the bottom line here, as you might have discerned by now, that I don't believe that there is any viable limiting principle here. The federal government can force you to enter any market and rest assured whatever unique attributes uh, of this marketplace, this marketplace being healthcare market, have motivated this Congress to do so. In the future, future Congresses would discover some other crises in various markets that demand their intervention. By the way, before I move on, I wanted to also mention that the alleged uniqueness of this market, even if it were true, is constitutionally meaningless. Now, all that uniqueness means is that a similar situation would not readily arise again. But why should it matter constitution-wise? The federal government, in my view, can no more exercise general police power once in a blue moon than it can exercise it consistently. If we had a you know, little thought experiment, if we had a statute featuring the use of general police power but could be triggered once in a thousand years, it'd still be pretty darn unconstitutional. Now, government recognizes this problem at least tacitly, and therefore in defending individual mandate for months and months now they've been relying not on a Commerce Clause, <clears throat> but more and more in the Necessary and Proper Clause. Now, unfortunately for them, fortunately for us, and fortunately for the Constitution, the Necessary and Proper Clause does not work very well either, and it has several insurmountable problems. Most obvious one, you don't need to be a lawyer to figure this out, the government is creating its own necessity to justify the application of a, of a clause. The prime alleged necessity is the securing the cost shifting, which I already mentioned. But why is cost shifting such a huge problem? Well, one reason it's such a huge problem, unlike in all of the other areas, 
you know, people get food stamps, people get housing vouchers, but you don't have a government mandating restaurateurs to provide free meals to, to people or, or, or free housing. Here, the government has forced healthcare providers to provide free medical care to folks who don't have insurance and do not wish or don't want or cannot pay out of pocket. So in a sense, the government created its own necessity. More broadly, the government fundamentally misreads the case law dealing with an necessary and proper clause, including a pretty interesting case uh, of, uh, of Reich, where the, my reference to cannabis comes from, as standing for a proposition that Congress can pretty much do anything, including reaching activity, as long as you make it a part of a larger statutory scheme. Of course, that ain't so. The real teaching of Reich, as explained by Justice Scalia, is that Congress can reach even local non-economic activity if that regulation is a necessary part of a more general regulation in interstate commerce. And again, you don't have to go to law school to figure out in, in Reich, Congress wanted to eradicate market in interstate cannabis, which again, whatever its policy merits, is entirely an objectionable application of the Commerce Clause. And that effort would have been completely circumvented since cannabis, there's no difference in interstate and interstate cannabis, if the interstate market for cannabis in all its aspects, including possession, was not brought into the overarching regulatory scheme. Now, the federal government here takes this as a drafting guide, so any end, no matter how unlawful, is okay as long as you put it into all-encompassing statute. That, of course, makes the robs of any meaning the teaching of, of Lopez and Morrison, which are the two rank risk court cases in which the courts, and particularly for us, and helpfully for us, Justice Kennedy uh, has powerfully articulated the need to ensure that the federal government is not exercising general police powers and the dual sovereignty system is preserved. It's also pretty passing strange to me that Constitution would preclude the imposition of certain legal requirements standing alone, but that's okay if they're put forward as a part of a broader scheme. So put differently, Congress can take any step it wants so long as it's a big step. Indeed, I've, I've argued during the oral argument, under this logic, Congress can pass all sorts of statutes, very ambitious, call it happiness and pr protection and welfare of all Americans Act of 2011, do precious little to help it come about, or maybe even have counterproductive regulatory provisions that are resting upon its enumerated powers, then you have a huge regulatory gap, and then presto pronto, you need, you have this do some machina type necessary and proper clause to bridge the gap. Doesn't work very well. But look, probably the most palpable problem of a government's reliance on the necessary and proper clause is an obvious one. It ain't called a necessary clause. It's called necessary and proper clause. And in this regard, both the founding era debates and the case law make abundantly clear. But the clause has to be used in a proper fashion, meaning it cannot vitiate or violate other key constitutional provisions or principles. This point, by the way, was made with great vigor by Chief Justice Marshall in the earliest and most famous necessary and proper clause case, styled McCullough, that to do with Bank of the United States. Thus, ladies and gentlemen, at the most fundamental level, the necessary and proper clause does not work for the government because the dual sovereignty architecture requires that all powers exercised by federal government, either singly or in combination of a commerce clause alone, a commerce clause is augmented by necessary and proper clause, must be cabined by meaningful judicially enforceable principle. Hence, the federal government does not get to exercise general police powers regulating individual folks because they exist either under the commerce clause alone or under the necessary and proper clause of both together.
Now, this point about the individual mandate being improper is further supported by the fact, and if you think about it for a second, it's actually also a very simple point, that the arguments the government has made about how capacious is the Commerce Clause and necessary and proper clause would literally rip out whole sections and clauses in the Constitution. Yet we know that that's not how a Constitution is meant to be interpreted. And the very same Chief Justice Marshall told us in Marbury versus Madison that it cannot be presumed that any clause in the Constitution is intended to be without effect. Under the government's logic, every single one of the power vesting clauses in Article I, Section 8, would be rendered pretty much superfluous, subsumed in the Commerce Clause and Necessary and Proper Clause. Why do you need to do the power to raise the Army and the Navy? You can easily say you're doing it to protect commerce, and on and on and on. I guess maybe framers weren't intelligent enough to figure it out. And then there's a whole, at least half a dozen other constitutional provisions identified by the Supreme Court in the Prince opinion, but I quote, presuppose the continued existence of the states and those means and instrumentalities which are the creation of the <clears throat> sovereign and reserve rights, close quote. They also pretty much become constitutional artifacts. Now, the next problem is that the view of it Congress can force citizens into economic activity, a proposition that is inextricably intertwined with individual mandate, pretty much renders the Bill of Rights not particularly useful. Now, why is that significant? Remember, the Bill of Rights was drafted pretty much on the framers' watch very soon after the Constitution was ratified. It was meant to augment, some called it the parchment barrier. It was clearly a secondary line of defense for individual liberty augmenting the broader and more fundamental structural protections inherent in the original Constitution, which is the enumeration of powers and the dual sovereignty system. But still, the Bill of Rights was meant to do meaningful things. And yet, interestingly enough, the Bill of Rights has pretty much very little to constrain the exercise of a commerce power, particularly if you view it as an ability to compel individuals to act. So under the First Amendment, the government cannot force you to profess your undying love for veggies or fruits, but it sure can compel you to buy them. So the government's unstated thesis here, but again, some very astute individuals who carefully drafted the Bill of Rights with a goal of protecting individuals against abusive exercise of governmental power. And again, of that power the government could exercise, unlike the, the more structural provisions, just kind of missed this big problem and left it alone. Another problem, pretty much if, if a government is right, that kind of calls into question the sanity of every previous Congress. Now, some of you may not be struck by the vigor of this argument, but, you know, there are bound to be some intelligent folks in the legislative branch in the last 200-plus years. Why am I saying that? If you look carefully at what Congress has done, every time Congress has regulated under the Commerce Clause, it regulated indirectly and partially and that was true whether it was Commerce Clause alone and Commerce Clause is aided by a necessary and proper clause. My favorite example, rather than mandating that floodplain uh, uh, residents, people with houses and floodplains, go out and purchase flood insurance. Congress required flood insurance uh, as a condition of securing and maintaining a mortgage from a federally regulated financial institutions, which of course means what, ladies and gentlemen? A bunch of folks did not get it especially the ones who got mortgages before this law was enacted, or did not get it from a federally chartered and regulated financial institution. And it ain't just that. All of numerous statutes, including the federal minimum wage law, securities law, child labor law, all are tied to interstate commerce and activities. None of direct mandates on individuals. It would have been so easy 
So simple, so direct to just mandate this stuff. So obviously, people who did those other statutes had no idea what they're doing. Now, last but not least, sort of on the merit side of my uh, discussion, if a government's arguments about the mandate's constitutionality are accepted, the end result would fundamentally rework the relationship between the federal government and the citizens, and the nature of citizenship itself, by the way. Now, why is that? There are few enumerated powers under which government actually regulates individuals, qua individuals, regulates them as citizens. It's distinct from regulating the activities in which they engage, and they all relate to traditional common law-derived duties and attributes of citizenship, like jury duty, census, serving the militia, military. These powers are narrow, ladies and gentlemen, and are incapable, formidable, I don't mean to minimize them, being conscripted in the military is a formidable exercise of governmental power, but it doesn't easily morph into general police power. Now, the government, by the way, has tried to use this argument to sort of say, look, how can you claim this big deal about compulsion? There are always powers to compel. Uh, the fact that the federal government is citing the existence of other powers, if you think about it, as a basis for compelling individuals to engage in economic activities, really redefines a citizenship that those traditional powers that I mentioned talk about the reciprocal duties between the government and the, and the citizens and they are really talking about citizen participation in governmental activities. Now we're talking about citizens having reciprocal duties to other citizens and citizens being forced to participate in economic activities directed at private companies. And that is, again, a fundamental and jarring redefinition of the constitutional vision of citizenship and certainly going back hundreds of years I would say the common law, certainly Anglo-Saxon vision of citizenship. So my bottom line is to, to defend the individual mandate the federal government has ended up disparaging the constitutional text, innumerable court decisions, over 200 years of legislative practice in our system of dual sovereignty. That's why the individual mandate is unconstitutional, would be declared as such by the Supreme Court. Now, I spent all this time talking about the individual mandate. It's worth noting there are other uh, challenges to other features of Obamacare. We, for example, in our case, have a commandeering claim. We argue that uh, the way which Obamacare recovers Medicaid uh, commandeers state officials and resources in violation of the Constitution and several major Supreme Court cases, including South Carolina v. Dole, Prince, and New York, as well as, as a sub we have a substantive due process claim. Other cases have featured First Amendment and Establishment Clause challenges, and scholars like Richard Epstein have uh, made takings laws-based arguments. There's quite a lot of other stuff there. Now, very briefly, this is a quick update on the procedural state of play. There are four Obamacare challenges have reached the Court of Appeals. Thomas More uh, Law Center case is pending at the Sixth Circuit with our argument to be heard during May-June 10th seating. At the Fourth Circuit, Virginia's challenge to Obamacare individual mandate and the Liberty University's case would be argued on May 10th. Our case is now at the 11th Circuit, and an expedited briefing schedule has been granted. One thing uh, worthy of note, unlike the case with the 4th and the 6th Circuit, we've asked the 11th Circuit to consider our case on bunk, possible or argument uh, date of June 6th. And I expect the court to rule on that certainly this week. So all things considered, I'm very optimistic that timeline-wise, I already said I'm optimistic about the ultimate outcome, but timeline-wise, Supreme Court will grant certs in our case, in Virginia's case, and possibly in one or more other 
cases pending at the circuit court level. We hear those cases during the 2011 term. One very plausible scenario would be uh, have cases briefed in January, February of 2012, for arguments in April, and the decisions issued in June. Now, thank you for your attention, and I'll be more than pleased to answer any questions. Thank you, David. Uh, I am going to uh, pick the first questioner. Uh, that's going to be me. And uh, uh, my question for you is uh, about the states, um, including many of the states that have joined the lawsuits against Obamacare, uh, that are also taking grants from the Department of HHS to set up the exchanges uh, that are a critical feature of that plan. Are they undermining the case? No, they are not. Um, there is no waiver or um, acquiescence of any sort. It is entirely possible. I mean, the decisions, I mean, let me back up and say first, the decisions whether to take money or not take money is quintessentially a political decision. Some of, of our 26 states have gone one way and that others have gone the other way. It does not impede uh, legal claims. Um, and the flip side of that is uh, DOJ at one point in time was musing aloud, Ramesh, whether taking the money somehow, uh, sorry, whether prosecuting the claim and maintaining that um, the statute is unconstitutional somehow prevents the government from dispensing the money, which I think actually is a silly argument because uh, there is nothing in the, uh, uh, in the way the money is being uh, appropriated and authorized here that conditions it upon any particular litigation outcome. Uh, there could be conditions tied to the money in terms of a state doing certain things, but if a given state wants to continue complying with Obamacare and receiving the money, that is appropriate in terms of both not impairing its ability to challenge it and in terms of ability of the federal government to give out the money. So it's a, it's a political question. One, I mean, it's probably a longer answer when you bargain for, but I would say this, and this is apropos of our commandeering claim. The problem you have, and by the way, our judge was very, very uh, sympathetic to this argument, even though unfortunately did not prevail on it. What do we have the, these days? We basically have the federal government that pretty much vacuum cleans most of the revenue in the land. If you look at the ratio of federal to state tax receipts, most of the money comes from, not from Mars, not from abroad. It comes from American citizens that reside in various states. So once the federal government takes this money, the opportunities for state government to I'm not saying states don't tax. They do, and a lot of them tax too much. But their opportunities to generate additional revenue are not that high. So it's a Faustian bargain. If you don't take the federal money, billions of dollars for each state that come from your citizens, it's going to go to some other state. It's a very, very difficult decision. So I wouldn't even hold it as a political matter This against somebody. That's the problem of a modern, uh, modern administrative state. Thank you. We've got a limited time for questions. I'd ask you um, when I call on you to identify yourselves and, uh, and uh, make your question in the form of a question. Over here. Thank you. Uh, I have worked a long time in health care. My question for Mr. Rifkin is the fact that the law passed, if we could put aside political um, affiliations, and the fact that this health care law has passed, do you not think that the federal government and Congress didn't, wouldn't have known there would be challenges to this law and that they would have 
put in place whatever, I'm not an attorney, I'm not a constitutional attorney, uh, put in place the legal whatever for the challenges to this law to keep it going. I, I don't like all of it, but uh, I haven't. Right. It's a very fine question. Let me, uh, let me tell you, I've certainly have not been around this town as long as some folks, but I've been here for a long time. I happen to work on several large pieces of legislation in my, in my career, in my government days. Two things would be interesting for you to, to hear. First of all, there is enormous disdain, unfortunately, for the Constitution, particularly in Congress, and I try to be bipartisan about it. It's unfortunate, but they don't care, and that's why Congress routinely passes things that are, everybody knows unconstitutional things like Chattis-style legislative veto. So that's kind of a normal baseline, and that's why there is so much laughter, if you will, among certain folks about you know, Tea Party types studying the Constitution, silly things like witchcraft, you know, uh, taking religion seriously, God forbid. Uh, but beside that, there is a particular level of hubris and disdain that attended Obamacare drafting. It was not drafted, by and large, by people in the executive branch. It was a legislative mess. Uh, there was no effort to seek the view of a Justice Department or the White House Counsel's Office. And I'm making those broad statements, but they're not guesses. I actually was involved in, in, in the debate during the legislative phase, and I tried to engage folks in debate. They just didn't care. It was arrogance. It was hubris. And, and give me a chance to remind you of a point I made earlier in my remarks about how badly drafted this is. I could have drafted this statute much better, which made it much more difficult to defend. They just didn't care. To give you an example, they're making arguments about the fact that uh, under Vanessa and Provocalage may strike as a legalistic point, but it's important. They're basically saying that the heart of our insurance industry regulation would not work because the insurance companies go bankrupt if we don't have infusion of funds from, uh, 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 from the mandate. First of all, it's not true because there's no price cap here. You can continue to jack up prices. It would be politically unpopular. It may sweep out of office even more the folks who did it but there's no bankruptcy. But second of all, if your legislative goal is to protect insurance companies, you have 14 legislative findings. Stick a finding about insurance industry, that protecting the viability of insurance industry in the view of Congress is integral to ability to deliver effective health care. Put it there. They didn't. They couldn't care less. They were arrogant and hubristic, and they're reaping what they've sown. There's not been any legal involvement. The way, the way it's done, I can tell you, in every administration, there's a letter that is sent from Congress asking DOJ for input, or administration as a whole for input. Sometimes it works that way. You call it senior manager's letter. You say, you know, and I've seen it in the context of a Clean Air Act, Energy Policy Act, American Disabilities Act, that if you do this and that, be aware of, you know, federalism concern, be aware of appointments clause, be aware of this, be aware of that. None of that happened. It was the craziest, most pathetic excuse for legislative process I've ever seen, taking into account the pretty low baseline that the legislative process usually features. Any, any more questions? Sure. Um, back there? Yes. Susan Hardwick. Uh, Mr. Rifkin, could you please comment on the $105 billion of self-funding provisions that have recently come to light? Is there a constitutional problem with the self-funding provisions? And if so, could you explain why that might not have been part of the case Forgive in me, Florida? what do you mean by self-funding? That's the, uh, what Michelle Bachman and Stephen King were talking about about two weeks ago where, and I read the law myself, which is that there 
the, the Secretary Sebelius can now actually commandeer resources from the Treasury to prevail and spend on the Obamacare legislation for the implementation well, without having them appropriated by Congress. Well, and to be honest, uh, always it's a, a statute that keeps on giving. Uh, I did not know about this, but uh, to the extent it's true, it is completely unconstitutional, of course, because no money shall be drawn from Treasury except in consequence of appropriations. Uh, there is a similar problem in, in the Dodd-Frank that creates this consumer safety uh, uh, bureau within the Department of Treasury, and instead of requiring them to go seek congressional appropriations, they actually siphon off a little piece of money that the Fed's Open Market Committee makes, also unconstitutional. We're not supposed to have self-financing entities in terms of, of separation of powers. And again, remember, you diffuse power not just vertically, which I kept talking about, vertical separation of powers, but horizontally, not because framers were kind of pedantic nuts and like to divide things up, to protect individual liberty, to make sure that no single governmental entity amasses too much power. The power of a purse is the most essential check in the legislature. So uh, it's, it's, I did not know that, but it's, it's truly appalling. What's interesting here, I mean, this old adage about where you sit is where you stand, you would think that Congress would not pass things but diminish Congress's own power, but I guess it's not always true. But that would be, that would be totally unconstitutional, but I, I'm not aware of that. Go ahead. Another, okay. I'm sorry. No, I'm no, reserving no, your, take usurping your prerogative. I delegate to you. <laughs> not stand on this no, delegation. No, no, non-delegation doctrine. Right. So. Thank you. Uh, let's see, my name is Hans Keithley. I had two questions for you. As you pointed out, there's a number of, there are a number of cases headed towards the Supreme Court. I'm confused as to how, what, what happens? Does the, does the Supreme Court wait until they all show up and make one judgment, or what, what's the timing there? And the second question is, what's, what, what's in the argument that, that this, this, uh, all these hard parts of the law aren't going to show up until 2014 anyhow, and so there's no hurry. Well, second one first, uh, that argument goes to ripeness, which is an, an aspect of standing. That argument has lost because uh, uh, <laughs> in order for a case to be ripe, the harm that gives you standing and injury, in fact, does not have to happen tomorrow as long as it's sufficiently locked in and there are no condition subsequent, there's no uncertainty about it. Interestingly enough, that argument was pretty much rejected both by the courts that upheld the mandate and the courts that struck the mandate. Now, you could be a little bit cynical and wonder if some of the judges that upheld the mandate did not blow past this argument so they can reach the merits, but I'm not that cynical. So that, that, that's, not a, that's not a big deal. On the, your first question, it's a little bit of a sausage making, and I'm speculating, but uh, the first case that's going to come out of a gate, um, probably Avaras or Virginia, or maybe Sixth Circuit, um, August, September, Supreme Court would be in, in, in recess anyway until the Red Mass. Uh, they will uh, file a cert petition. Whoever loses would file a cert petition. Um, the court may well sit on it for a few months to see what else is, is, is coming down. Uh, it would certainly make sense for them to take both us and Virginia. And I, I think that would happen. Again, there are many scenarios for a time. We can talk about one of the reasons we went on bunk, which those of you who are not lawyers is asking the entire circuit to hear us, is precisely, even if it's a little bit slower, precisely to avoid the situation where we prevail at the panel level. And the government, which at one hand says, oh, we want speedy resolution, on the other hand, 
kind of doesn't seem like they want a speedy resolution, then going on bunk, we will not have this problem if, if we, as I expect here this week. In the case of a fourth and the sixth circuit, ironically enough, whoever loses can go directly to the Supreme Court uh, and seek cert. But it's not true if you win. So there might be some scenarios. But that's, again, a kind of a sausage mash making of litigation. Well, I think uh, we have unfortunately run out of time. Uh, but I suspect that you can pepper David with, with further questions on his way out the door. Thank you all very much for coming to this very informative talk.